The Hot 4 podcast this week is proudly sponsored by SSV Limited. From tanks to full brew houses, SSV Limited has got you covered. SSV Limited have established themselves as the go-to partner to help you grow your brewery. High quality tanks, parts, brewing kits, coupled with the knowledge and experience to ensure your project runs smoothly from beginning to completion, whether it's equipment supply, full turnkey or anything in between. Their part shop stocks well over a thousand essential brewing parts to keep your brewery up and running and many are available on next day delivery. Visit their website at ssvlimited.co.uk and don't forget to visit their stand at Seba BRX in Liverpool this March. You can find them on stand number one, so make sure you swing by, say hello and admire their shiny brew houses. I'm Nick Law and you're listening to the Hop Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hop Forward is a weekly podcast dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions and stories from the whole brewing supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a glass, pour yourself a beer and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Hello Hopheads and welcome to the Hop 4 podcast. My Serene, Farnesine, Cohumalone, Linalool, terms that brewers are now more familiar with in this IPA producing climate than ever before. Even a mere five years ago, these hop oil and bittering compounds weren't as readily discussed as they are today. Bittering an aroma or dual purpose hops maybe, but talking about the science of IPAs, not so much. A lot's changed over the past 20 years for the production of hoppy beers. In 2010, Oak Ales, based in the cathedral town of Peterborough, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but that makes Peterborough sound way more grand than it is. My wife's from Peterborough, and with the exception of Oak Ales and the cathedral, there's really nothing to rave about. Apologies if you're from Peterborough, but I'm just putting that out there. Where was I? Oak Ales were the first brewery in the United Kingdom to make use of a new hop called Citra. This outlandishly citrusy hop, despite its high alpha acid content, set the roadmap for how modern beers, especially IPAs, could and would taste for years to come. It's little wonder brewers such as Thornbridge and Brewdog have both had massive successes with their flagship IPAs, Jaipur and Punk IPA, on account of the use of citra hot on the heels of Okamale's citra. Despite being high in alpha acids, citra produces a grapefruit, lime and tropical fruit taste with a fresh citrus aroma on the nose, in part due to the high levels of mycerine, without being aggressively bitter. The key phrase, if you didn't notice, was in that last sentence. The key phrase, if you didn't notice, in that last sentence was, in part. Fast forward 12 years and you'll find no end of literature, podcasts, research papers, books and YouTube channels dedicated to the science of brewing, even the study of IPAs. Think of brewing like a jigsaw. It's only when all the pieces come together that we have a full picture and can fully appreciate the work of art. But each of those pieces, positioned in their rightful place, makes up that whole. pH, work composition, hop oil content, boil times, whirlpool temperatures, biotransformation, dry hopping durations and temperatures, how long hops sit in the tank, the length of time a beer sat in a package and what temperature. All of these pieces, amongst many others, play their contribution towards that whole. Due to the popularity of modern IPAs as a category, it's little wonder why brewers have dedicated so much time and effort to understanding the science behind hops. The problem, quote-unquote, so to speak, is that there are so many great IPAs out there. Anecdotally, bar owners I know usually find that the heralded beer styles on untapped, the crazy stouts and sours, actually have a slower throughput than the unquenchable thirst for IPAs, which in keg or cask can be emptied in half the time and usually without all the fanfare to accompany. When an IPA or a modern hoppy pale hits all the right notes, it can be a game changer for a brewery. Take Dea Brewing Company based in Cheltenham in the UK. Their flagship hazy pale, Steady Rolling Man, is revered by beer drinkers for its soft, pillowy qualities and smooth citrus finish. 
I'm convinced that understanding the science behind brewing hoppy beers is a massive contributor to a brewery's success in a market that is dominated by IPAs. And as I said, there are so many of them, the competition is fierce. I spoke to Scott Janish, co-founder of Sapwood Cellars in Columbia, Maryland, and author of The New IPA, about the science behind IPAs and hopping that will enable every brewer to create better beers. Please note that this episode was recorded over Zoom and the audio bandwidth wasn't great at the time of recording, so it may sound a little bit telephony if you catch my drift. Um, but either way, this is a fantastic episode and I hope it gets you ahead in the brewing and beer industry. But before we crack open this episode, here's a word from the sponsor of this week's show and a little bit more about Hop Forward. Not only is Hop Forward a brewing industry dedicated podcast, but we also provide creative media solutions and consultancy for companies and people who are looking to get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hot Forward works with a range of diverse enterprises from across the world of beer to provide branding and marketing consultancy, brewing and business advice, and bespoke creative solutions to help you hot rocket your way to success. Check out hotforward.beer for more info or connect with us on social media at Hot Forward Beers. Finally, don't forget to thank our sponsors who make the show possible on a weekly basis. The Hot Four podcast this week is proudly sponsored by SSV Limited. From tanks to full brew houses, SSV Limited has got you covered. SSV Limited have established themselves as the go-to partner to help you grow your brewery. High quality tanks, parts, brewing kits, coupled with the knowledge and experience to ensure your project runs smoothly from beginning to completion, whether it's equipment supply, full turnkey or anything in between. Their part shop stocks well over a thousand essential brewing parts to keep your brewery up and running, and many are available on next day delivery. Visit their website at ssvlimited.co.uk and don't forget to visit their stand at Seba BRX in Liverpool this March. You can find them on stand number one, so make sure you swing by, say hello and admire their shiny brew houses. For now, grab a beer and let's crack open today's discussion. Today on the Hot Four podcast, I'm joined by Scott Janish, author of the new IPA. Hello. How's it going? Thanks for having me. I'm all right. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Doing, doing good here. It's, uh, just as we're talking off air, just got done uh, bottling up a, a barrel-aged uh, vanilla imperial stout here. So I, I feel like I still have sticky, uh, <laughs> uh, sticky sweet beer all over me, but, um, but doing good. Happy days. Um, you'll have to forgive my ignorance. Obviously, I'm familiar with your work through um, the the book, the new IPA. But what's the brewery that you you own or run? Uh, I own uh, co-own actually Sapwood Cellars. So we are a brewery in Columbia, Maryland, which is um, very like in between like the Baltimore and Washington D.C. area um, in the U.S. And so I actually uh, co-own it with my uh, good friend Michael Tomsmeyer, who himself uh, is is an author and blogger. Uh, he wrote. American sour beers, and um, for the longest time was uh, uh, blogging under uh, the madfermentationist.com. So we, oh, okay, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. So we we got together about a uh, uh, little over three years ago and, and started up uh, our brewery. Right. So yeah, I'm I'm guessing some of the beers you're putting out there are very very good. <laughs> <laughs> we like to think so. Hopefully, uh, the public agrees. Yeah, brill. Well, this week I wanted to talk all things hops naturally with your book. But before we talk about any specifics on a variety of topics such as dry hopping or the science of brewing hoppy beers and IPAs, I'm interested to know what actually led you to writing and publishing the new IPA in the first place. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a good good question. I was, you know, for the longest time uh, just blogging, just kind of like a, a, a recipe. Here's my recipe. Here's my results. This is what I think of it. Um, and I, I started to sort of dip my toes into the academic um, literature world. Um, I guess this would have been uh, six years ago or so now at this point. Um, and it was really eye-opening to me to start thumbing through some of these um, peer-reviewed papers where it was, you know, instead of just reading about what people thought on, on forums or homebrewing forums and, or things like that, it was, you know, we're actually testing 
you know, what is the best way to dry hop? Well, here's, here's a few ways we, um, you know, we're actually testing the compounds in the beer. So we know what's being extracted. And then that same beer is going in front of a sensory panel. Um, and, and for me, I was just kind of hooked right away. Cause that was just like, you know, that's putting the, you know, it, it doesn't get much better than actually testing the compounds and putting it in front of a panel um, to give you a, not necessarily, it doesn't mean, you know, whatever they test was the best way to do something, but it, you know, gives you ideas on uh, to experiment with uh, in your home brewery or our professional brewery. And so um, I, I really just started getting into the research papers and um, the more I, the more I read, the more I could kind of connect dots between papers and, um, you know, I was writing blog posts that were very academic heavy and, and that just kind of led to, um, you know, organically over some time to, uh, uh, writing the book. In fact, I, I went over to, uh, Mike's house to, to ask him, uh, years ago of what he thought about writing a book. And if I thought, uh, if he thought it would be worth it, if I, if I went down that route and, um, it was around that time or that day where we had maybe a few too many beers and decided to uh, open Sapwood Cellars. So <laughs> it was <laughs> a successful trip to his house, but, um, but the short answer to, you know, how I got started in, in the, uh, down the, the path of writing a book was, you know, just over time collecting a whole bunch of uh, different academic studies, um, kind of connecting some dots between them and, and realizing, you know, how much material there, there was out there. Um, you know, how many questions I was finding answers to that, you know, I've had for a while and, um, just deciding, you know, that maybe trying to, to write it down to, um, you know, it, if, if it's helpful for me, it's probably, you know, also helpful to other brewers. And so that was kind of the, um, how I got started on the, on the whole book route. Fantastic. Uh, I mean, I have to confess, and I, I, I probably speak on behalf of a lot of the British brewing industry when I say this, like the amount of people that have um, referred to this book is, is pretty um, amazing, really. Um, and I think one of the things I love about it is that it, it is like a academic piece. My wife always laughs at me when I'm reading it in bed <laughs> at night. She's like, <laughs> she's like, surely that's going to wake you up, right? Um, but, you know, it's, it's um, it, I know a lot of people have, uh, when I've asked questions about IPAs, they've said, oh, have you read the new IPA? It's brilliant. So um, it, it is an, an excellent book. So before we sort of may, maybe cover some questions that I've got, that have come out of that. Mm -hmm. I do have a question. Do, do you think that there's an expectation of what constitutes as a quote-unquote good IPA these days, given especially the rise in popular styles such as New England IPAs and how people's palates have developed when it comes to tasting flavours? Maybe an IPA from even a decade ago might seem really aggressively bitter now. Uh, where, because of people getting used to like hazy IPAs, because there are so many IPAs out there, do you think that if an IPA is probably good on its own merit and standard, um, you know, people have got all these amazing um, IPAs to compare them to? So it's almost like a, a beer style that, unless you're like making exceptional IPAs, that the, the ones that are good but not maybe not necessarily amazing get a little bit overlooked or downtrodden on if if those two questions make sense yeah i think uh, you know I, as far as like an expectation when you when you order an ipa i think you know for the most part you know it, it's a lot of places will do a good job of of giving you kind of like which category that ipa falls under you know is that a west coast ipa is that a uh, what we call a east coast ipa a little bit maltier um is it a New England IPA, which is, you know, obviously hazier and, and um, can be a little less bitter. Um, you know, so I, I, I think, you know, as long as people kind of give a good, uh, you know, give you a good idea of what you're ordering, you, you should, you know, a good IPA should stand out kind of, kind of no matter what. And I think there's a lot of great IPAs that kind of blur all those lines together and you know, kind of, you know, don't necessarily fall 100% in one category, but it's still a great balance um, hoppy beer. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, it's interesting when you're going to, um, you, you know, go to different breweries and, and what you can kind of expect from, from hoppy beers, but, you know, just me personally, I, I really, um, try to brew hoppy beers that, you know, are, are very, you know, soft on the palate, you know, I almost think more like a, a stout might taste, uh, in terms of mouthfeel. Mm. Um, but, 
very aromatic, very bright, very tropical or citrusy. And then, you know, do your best uh, to have the flavor of that beer kind of match the aroma. So, you know, really layering in hot side, hot flavor. Um, and then, you know, trying, trying to balance that, that bitterness aspect, just because, uh, you know, a hazy IPA shouldn't be bitter. I think a lot of them, um, don't have enough bitterness. So I think, you know, balance is still, um, still kind of, you know, still kind of key when it comes to, again, in my opinion, um, crafting a, a good, uh, IPA in general. And, and that especially is, can be true for, for hazy IPAs. Mm. Cool. Well, we'll we'll come on to that because um, I I thought we could go through and cover the process of brewing IPAs, you, you know, both hazy IPAs and their more bitter counterparts from field to fermentation and then through to packaging. Um, if if that's cool with you, um, yeah. So let, let's start with hop selection. I, I know not every brewer out there is in the privileged position of going out and choosing hop lots from a particular farm. Um, so just to cover all bases for the brewers that do have that available to them and the ones that don't what what should a brewer be looking for when it comes to inspecting hops on the bind and, and you know choosing lots and what should brewers be looking for when obviously they, they haven't got that privilege but they open their sealed foil bag when it lands in their brewery when it comes to quality what should brewers be looking out for uh, you know, I think, you know, if you're, if you're lucky enough, you know, I think uh, when I was interviewing other breweries for the book, part of it in the back, is kind of just, uh, uh, you know, highlighting some of my um, favorite breweries in, in the U S and kind of what, you know, what their process was, they were nice enough to share. And, and a handful of them thought, you know, one of their biggest advantages, um, was the fact that they could go out there and select their own hops mm. just because, you know, you know, a lot of times you can do everything right, uh, process wise. Um, but if your, you know, ingredients aren't, aren't, you know, super great, you know, it's hard to make a beer that's going to, you know, translate how you want it to. So, um, you know, I selecting is hard. I think, you know, it's, you know, a lot of times if you're only given three samples or four samples of one variety, it's, it's hard to um, make a, a good decision. But I think, you know, in terms of what, if I were in that position, what I would be looking for, I think, you know, it's aroma number one. <laughs> Um, obviously I think you're, you're really just trying to, you know, pick a, you know, if it's, you know, trying to pick a, let's say mosaic that leans a little more, you know, maybe berry forward or, you know, fruit forward and less like, you know, gassy or diesel-y, um, things like that. You're, you're looking for a citra that maybe is like bright and, you know, obviously citrus like, um, and not, you know, green onion like, which can happen sometimes. Mm. And so. Um, I think really it's, it's, it's aroma big time. Um, and, and it's what, you know, it's, not everyone's going to agree. I think if you get a bunch of brewers in a room, everyone likes, you know, different aspects of, of different hop varieties. And, and so that's kind of where uh, a lot of the fun is, but, um, and, and for those breweries that um, aren't big enough to select, I think, um, one good method is to, you know, if you're buying spot hops, um, you know, instead of buying all your spot hops from, from one supplier, you know, just buy one box from a supplier or buy one box from three or four different suppliers. And if you really like one of those bags in one of those boxes, you know, you know, email and, and call that company and say, Hey, like, can I buy any more from that lot? Um, you know, and that's kind of a way of selecting just through, you know, purchasing what's available on spot. Mm -hmm. So I think you, you can, sometimes they'll, they'll have more of it and sell it to you. If that's a good way to kind of, um, you know, hedge your bets a little bit instead of just buying whatever um, you first see when it comes to spot hops. But I think, uh, yeah, it's really, it's really aroma for me when it, when it comes to picking hops. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess brewers really ought to be um, getting to grips with, you know, the, the different types of aromas that hops kick out and particular varieties, I should say, of hops kick out um, because, I guess if you don't, as a brewer, I can tell the difference, but it's like, you know, there are some hop varieties that I smell where um, I'm trying to think, I know Fuggles is one of them. There's another one, but I can't think what it is off, off the top of my head where it's just like they, they smell really similar. For anyone that's looking to develop their sensory knowledge, like what, what kind of, when it comes to hops in particular, what, what kind of things would you suggest in able to be able to 
you know, maybe put that vocab to that particular smell or flavor or whatever? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think the more you, you smell beers throughout the process and the more you're, you're smelling, um, uh, finished beers and not just smelling them, but, you know, putting a hop variety to the, those beers, I think you start to get a little like muscle memory for some of those, hmm. um, aromas. Um, for me, I, I really like, um, smelling, um, you know, before we ever use a hop, you know, if we're, we're dry hopping, um, for example, and we open a bag, it's, you know, it, you smell it here. And, and if it doesn't, you know, kind of smell up to our par, then we, we won't use it for that particular beer. I think that's, you know, just really getting in touch with what you're looking for in hops can um, go a long way and in, in to how a lot of your beers turn out. But, um, I really like smelling beers throughout the process too. So, you know, like smelling the hops that you're adding to the whirlpool and then, you know, after primary fermentation um, and before you start dry hopping the beer, pulling samples and, and really smelling them, seeing, you know, which, um, which if any hot side hop flavors came through or not, and, you know, smelling your beers during dry hop. Um, and then of course um, afterwards. And, and I guess, you know, really dialing in on certain hop varieties is, you know, just doing single hop um, beers mm. just to, you know, you know, really get, all right, what does this taste like? Not only in a bag, but in a finished beer and it's only that hop. Um, and, you, and that's pretty easy to do if you're at a brewery. I mean, you can always just, you know, if you have a smaller vessel or just use a, a keg, you know, before you dry hop a big batch, just, you know, transfer, you know, uh, you know fill a keg and uh, with uh, some, some finished, uh, fermented uh, IPA base, but and then add different or single uh, hop varieties to that keg, and just kind of dry hop smaller batches that way, just to get a a good sense of the hops you have, or to you know play with some experimental varieties. So it's a pretty easy way to you know um, take take your batches a little further in terms of what you can learn. Yeah. Plus, also, I guess you could put it on in your tap room and uh, sell it as a special beer and sell even more of it because it you know he's a different beer you know yeah uh, yeah yeah definitely um just just before leading to my next question just when you were talking about um smelling beer um i'm doing a vdk test at the moment on a an ipa that i'm hopefully going to dry up uh, just to make sure the diastyl has been utilized and I, <laughs> I sat at the dinner table with my kids today um smelling these two samples and getting them to smell, which one do you think, do you think one of these smells more like butterscotch? And they were like, you're so weird, Dad. You're so weird. And then uh, one of them was just like, can you please put that glass down? You look weird. <laughs> They're always going to think you're weird, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But just, I'm, I'm going to be even more weird now. My dad sits at the table and smells hops, you know. Um, so when it, when it comes to formulating an IPA recipe, of, of, of other than like, rubbing the hops and smelling them what sort of consideration should a brewer be making ahead of time um to ensure they're getting the best quality beer out and best quality ipa out at the end uh you mean it's just in terms of just like general recipe development yeah yeah uh, yeah yeah yeah. again it always kind of really depends on on what you're after and and a lot of what i focus on is um you know brewing hazy ipas and, and i think you know creating a just kind of starting with the grist i think creating a well-balanced uh, grist that's really you know has a lot of uh, malted proteins um, heavy malted protein grist like uh, grains like a malted wheat or a malted spelt that like 10 or 15 percent of that grist i think that's a really good place to to be in terms of um, providing some good proteins that are um, more capable of of uh, interacting with polyphenols, which is, you know, a big part of uh, the haze in those beers. And, you know, also I think those heavier protein grits might give you a little bit more of a um, potential for mouthfeel increase. Um, I, I like doing about, you know, maybe 10% or so of oats, whether that's flaked or, um, you know, malted naked oats or, um, and that's, you know, oats are high in beta glucans, which can also, uh, you know, the carbohydrate that can, also help with uh, mouthfeel and can help, uh, you know, in, in our case, a lot of times help lighten up some of those beers. I think um, hazy IPAs in particular benefit visually from just being very light. Mm. Um, I think if you have a, a hazy uh, beer that has little like 
caramel color to it or something, it can kind of look uh, a little off-putting, kind of like dirty dishwater or something <laughs> like that. So, so I like to focus on just kind of pale grains in the grist. Um, you know, it, the rest is usually a little bit of chip malt, which for us is, uh, you know, we use that for it helps with head, uh, head retention. And, um, and then we do, you know, either a mix or all pale two row or a mix of like two row and, um, like uh, pills malt, something like that. And that's, you know, a pretty good base for us to build most of our IPAs and, and double IPAs off of. Yeah. So what, I mean, what, just, just, that leads me on to a question I was going to ask a bit later on, but just, just mm-hmm. let's just talk about hopping those bigger IPAs and double, you know, like double IPAs and triple IPAs even like what, what are some good techniques and practices for, for hopping those big juicy, robust, robust beers like these ones? And when you put in a, a supporting grist build together, um, is and mashing it, etc. Like, what, what maybe are some considerations that brewers can do so that you don't end up with something that's either too cloying or or too heavy or just totally unbalanced? Because I, I think on the face of it, the idea of brewing a, a double IPA seems like a an easy one, you know, it's just like an IPA, but bigger, but they are actually like, I found like some of the hardest beers to, to get right. Yeah. I think, uh, it's definitely, I think, uh, hazy IPAs especially can be really challenging to, to get right and to, to keep like shelf stable and, you know, they have some of their issues, but you know, for me, I think when it comes to not having too cloying or too much of a bitterness, kind of a stringency thing you can get with a lot of Hazy IPAs, I think a lot of the ones that I've had um, that, um, in my opinion, don't come across super balanced. They can be really green and vegetal and, um, you know, just kind of have a, it's, it's not necessarily like a hot side, uh, isomerized elf acid kind of bitterness bite, but more of like a vegetative bite to them. Mm. Um, to me, some of those beers just uh, don't have enough hot side hopping. You know, I think a lot of times people are afraid of, of bitterness when it comes to a hazy IPA, but, um, I still think, you know, you can, you can get away with, uh, quite a bit of, uh, you know, hot side hops in your, in your whirlpool. Um, especially if you're cooling that whirlpool a little bit, so you don't pick up as much, uh, you know, I summarized alpha acids and, um, you know, we're, uh, you'll have to excuse me. We do like two close to two pounds per barrel. Um, and I think that's probably around eight um, grams a liter, something like that. I might have, I might have completely botched. We've that. got calculators um, online. It's I, I mean, we, <laughs> okay, we have we have to use them when we're you know going through all the American literature. So it's it's we're used to it. It's fine. <laughs> I do. We should all just uh, just move to 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 your standard. It'd be much easier. For <laughs> it everyone. really would. Yeah. <laughs> it's the worst one. It's Fahrenheit right. to Celsius. I'm like sixty eight degrees Fahrenheit. That's oh yeah, that's a bit, I, yeah. <laughs> I feel you. Um, <laughs> every time I'm writing an article or, or something in the book, I always do it in Fahrenheit and I have to go back and, and Google each one of those in, in Celsius to put, put in parentheses behind them. But, yep. um, but yeah, just kind of uh, going back to the, you know, I, the balance kind of aspect in, in, in some of these heavily hot beers, I think, um, you know, getting close to that two pounds per barrel at a reduced temperature. And again, this will be um, Fahrenheit, but easy to look up, but we're around 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and you know, I, it, for us, you know, there, there's a lot of good research that's been done. Actually, this is post, um, post when I was working on the book from Yakima chief that looked at a whole bunch of different hop varieties and, and was, you know, came up with a new term called survivable. And so, you know, what they, what they did is they took, they took a, a good kind of hoppy beer, um, that's complete and they kind of work backwards. So they looked at, you know, all right, this is, this is a good hoppy beer. What compounds are in it? In other words, like which one, which compounds from hops survive the whole process, survive mm-hmm. the kettle, survive fermentation. Um, and so they put together sort of, you know, that list of these survivable compounds, which can be, you know, a mix of monoterpene alcohols. Um, they can be, you know, thiols. Um, and, and they found that there's certain hop varieties that just have more of these survivable compounds. And these are probably, um, ones that are better to use or experiment with, um, in the whirlpool just to get, 
you know, get more of that flavor to carry through. Um, and so I, that's, you know, of our two pounds per barrel, we're using, you know, a lot of these high survivable hops like Idaho 7, Simcoe or um, Mosaic or, you know, even even things like Columbus can go uh, a long ways for us. Um, Rewaka is another one hot side that seems to carry over well. Um, and so I think trying to create a base that's you're using hops on the hot side for bitterness um, to help with, with balance, but you're also doing your best to use hops that not only get you your bitterness, but also are going to get you some hop flavor that carry through and um, really pairs well with that eventual heavy dry hopping. All right. And that, that's, that's in the whirlpool, the two pounds per barrel. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and we do a little bit of, of hopping before that. Um, sometimes we'll take a few pounds and add it, uh, to it. For us, we're a 10 barrel system and we'll add a, you know, like two pounds or so and that we add to the mash and we add that right away. Um, and that's just um, because of um, some science I came across in the book that, that showed that, you know, mash hopping the alpha and beta acids from hops can help to complex uh, metals that you're getting just naturally occurring from your grain. Mm. So the alpha and beta acids can complex some of those metals, um, which hopefully will lead to less chances of, of oxidation down the road, you know, like your iron and, and copper, um, things like that. So we do that just a few pounds just to you know, hopefully that, you know, it's some sort of insurance for a more stable product. Uh, but then almost all the, the hops come uh, towards the end of the boil. Yeah. And that was mash hopping rather than first wort hopping. Yep, yeah. mash hopping, yeah, and yeah. so that's yeah, and that's uh, one of those things that you know they the research has found that you know the higher the pH, the better the alpha uh, the acids are at complexing these metals, and so you know that might be something worth worth doing uh, in your mash before you even acidify your mash or, or adjust it for the pH or after. So just you know tossing in those hops right away might. Um, potentially be a good way of, of increasing your chances for a, a more stable product mm. uh, yeah I've, I've only done it once mash hopping and i i uh i got a stuck mash <laughs> but it, it, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't on account of the, just on account of the hops it was a um we were trying to do a, a toasted wheat double dry hopped ipa and it was my bright idea to um put the hops in there as well um and there was way too many oats way too much wheat and it was the rookie error on my part of not layering those um the grist either and it all just got stuck <laughs> so that's always it was a, super frustrating when that happens and you always just say next time more rice hole. yeah 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 it was a long day yeah I st- started started early in the morning and didn't get home until like 1am the following day <laughs> It was it was rough. It was a collab as well. I've been there. It, it was a collab, and the the guys. So it got to like six six thirty in the evening, and they had to travel back to Bradford, which is um you know again probably about thirty forty miles from Sheffield where I am. And I was just like, you, you need to go, lads, back to your families. I've got this. <laughs> yeah. So if it's at your place, if the collab's at your place, then I, I would be leaving. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So, I mean, let, let's just, um, if, if we just talk about some of the hop varieties when, when we're putting IPAs together, other, other than the classic citra mosaic combo. Um, so w- when we come to blending the certain varieties and drawing out certain flavors and aromas, obviously you talked upon some of the chemical compounds there. Are, are there any other considerations we should make when we think about what hops we're going to put in a beer and what they're going to do? Yeah, I think maybe focusing not so much even on just like the hop variety, but the hop, um, different hop products um, when you're choosing some of your recipes. I mean, one of the things I we really like to do here is um, doing like a combination of like a, a T90, which is just, you know, your, your traditional mm. pellet, which, you know, has, you know, approximately 90% of the vegetal material in, in the hop. Um and then using that with like a, a, a cryo hop of the same variety. So cryo is just a more, you know, I'm sure everyone listening knows, but it's just more concentrated yep. uh, form of the hop. So um, it's for us, like the cryo hops can be, you know, obviously more punchy. They're, they're more aromatic. They're, they're not as like soft fruit like as you can get it, it, with some of the um, T90 pellets, um, but they just add that kind of layer of oomph to a beer that can help, you know, just kind of, 
help it explode out of the glass a little bit more. Mm. And so, you know, I, I like doing a lot of the, you know, half T90 mosaic and half T90 mosaic cryo as a, as a dry hop. So it's like all one variety, but it's, you know, you have kind of a layering uh, thing going on with which compounds are, are getting in with different amounts of vegetable material. And, you know, cryo seems to want to like stay in suspension a little bit better and probably, you know, extracts a little bit better, which I haven't seen that actually tested, but I um, kind of theorize that based on how it, long it takes us to, to get it to drop out of beer. So um, different hot products like that um, can be uh, another thing to look at when you're crafting recipes, not just the, the varieties of mm. hops themselves. And what, what, what's your thought and take on using enzymes and things like that in fermentation? Uh, I guess it really depends what you're going for. If you're trying to like really dry out a beer, you know, that sometimes that can be necessary. Um, there, there are certain enzymes um, that you can use um, that might increase your chances of biotransformation. So, you know, that's biotransformation is really um, having one compound kind of go to another um, and so, you know, or, or the freeing of, of compounds, which are, are normally bound. So you, you have like, you know, hops will have both free and bound compounds and the, the bound ones are, are in the hop, but you, you don't smell them. Mm. Um, you're really only smelling the, the free ones. And so there's certain enzymes, um, beta glucosidase is an enzyme that is capable of freeing some bound monoterpene alcohols. And those are the, you know, the the compounds in, in hops that you're probably after the most when it comes to, you know, fruitier uh, hop flavors, like these are like geraniol and uh, linalool, those, those types of compounds. Um, and so we've, we've added, there's a uh, Lollabond has one now specifically made for, for beer, a beta glucosidase enzyme. Um, for the longest time, it was really only something that was done in the wine world. Um, right. There's a, a lot of similar, uh, uh, compounds in, in wine that we're after in, in hops, which is, you know, that's more true probably for, for thiols than um, monoterpene alcohols. But um, so you can add uh, enzymes like that to try to increase your, um, increase the aroma a little bit. We've done it a number of times. It, uh, whenever we add it, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely not making a beer worse. It's, but it's hard to say it's like the secret uh, ingredient to, you know, explosive flavor, but um, it, it does seem like it's it's something worth uh, experience, experimenting with if if you haven't and um, and maybe you know it's it's more of a combination thing too you know trying to pair a a hop that's really high in in bound um, uh, terpenes like let's say amarillo I, I believe is high in in bound um, geraniol so maybe using that with uh, beta glucosidase enzyme might be a better pairing than know a hop that doesn't um, necessarily have as many bound compounds and where you wouldn't need a enzyme. So um, I think all that stuff is, is fun to play with and experiment with, but it's, you know, it, it does always kind of come down to, you know, what your, what your, your main goal is with the beer. Yeah. So ju just coming back a little bit in the, in the process, um, talk about some of the things that are happening in the boil when it comes to making IPAs. I mean, again, I think most of our listeners are well acquainted with the fundamentals of bittering and aroma additions. Um, but I mean, what, what are the considerations we should we be making when it comes to putting hops in the kettle on the hot side? Uh, you know, in terms of like the survivable thing, I think it's definitely important, you, you know, using the varieties that might, do a better job of, of surviving that, that harsh environment, which the, the boil can be, um, you know, other than that, you know, like I said, we don't typically use a lot of hops when it comes, um, to the kettle, you know, we're just you're getting most of our bitterness from, uh, you know, like a 30 minute or so, uh, whirlpool. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, dry hopping itself can lead to bitterness. Um, and so that's, that's another thing to consider, which, you know, wasn't always believed to be the case, uh, you know, five, 10 years ago, but there are uh, bittering acids in, in hops, even when they're not in the kettle called humulones, which um, extract very efficiently in the beer during a dry hop. And, you know, they, they, it is a bittering acid, but it's about 60% um, as bitter as, you know, 
isomerized alpha acid, which is what you get um, in the kettle when you're when you're adding uh, alpha acid. So, um, so we, a lot of our um, hops are really coming um, tail end of of the, the kettle and and um, the the dry hopping itself. Um, but yeah. you know, there, there's other things you could consider adding to the kettle for you know there's incognito is a, is another uh, new product that's you know hop bridal specific oils um which you can add to your beer um we tend to add those again in the whirlpool when it's when it's a little cooler so we don't get too much bitterness but um oils themselves tend to uh, probably increase the amount of hop compounds actually getting into your wort at that stage mm. just because it's already in a in, in a liquid form that's um, probably for the most part, um, you know, pretty, pretty soluble. So, um, so that's, that's another thing to, to consider to try to up, up your, your actual hot side flavor, um, uh, a little bit, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, new products always coming out, but that's, that's one that's kind of caught on a little bit more. Yep. So what was the name of that again? I didn't quite catch it. Incognito. Right. So it's just a hot variety specific oil and there's also a full spectrum um, is another uh, hot variety of product. I believe that's from the Bartos group, um, which is another uh, extract type product that you can use uh, in the kettle. Mm. So there's so much to pick up on there just from everything you just said. We'll talk about, I guess, IBUs and bitterness when it comes to both whirlpooling and dry hopping. We'll start whirlpooling first because I'm quite curious how are you measuring your IBUs? If you got like, testing equipment or sending stuff off regularly. You said earlier about people being a bit afraid to put hops sometimes in either at the end of the board or in the whirlpool because they're, they're, they're worried about isomerization and, bit- mm-hmm. and over-bittering a beer. And I've had it happen to me um, on numerous occasions where I've thought, oh, I'm just going to get a whole bunch of flavor. And then it's like, oh, the, even this <laughs> even this is bitter, you know. Um, so like how, how are you... How are you practically measuring those IBUs and, and or or how did you do that in order to dial in your system so you know that right if we use x amount of this variety of this alpha acid then we're going to get within a, the ballpark of yeah. this IBU so we use uh, the IBU figure at the brewery more as like a repeatability figure so this is more of a um, a number that we use so we can um know basically what we're getting and, and if we want to repeat a beer hopefully we can get into that same sort of bitterness ballpark but um you know the ibu number itself is is a little tricky mm. so you know it's uh the, the test for ibus is just testing all the bittering acids that are in the beer it's not it's not testing individual bittering acids and um the reason that's um, can be important uh, when you're looking at the IBU number, it's not all bittering acids are equally as bitter. So, you know, just knowing your your IBU number from a beer that's all hot side hopped versus one that was heavily dry hopped, um, you know, the IBU number might be exactly the same, but they could taste drastically different in their in their bitterness. And that's just because, you know, the the different acids, like I said earlier, uh, humulones, which uh, extract well during dry hopping, are less bitter than hot side hop. Um, so, you know, knowing exactly how many humulones in your beer is more helpful for like a true sensory bitterness right. uh, figure. Um, but, you know, that's not everyone has that equipment and, and we don't at, at our brewery. So, you know, we kind of use our, our IBU number as just a, a, a repeat, repeatability uh, figure that we can use and say, okay, last time our, our double IPA was, you know, 90 IBUs. Um, that's what we use. We use Beersmith, which is a software that, you know, has a formula built in yep. knowing, you know, which temperature you're at you know, about where you might get in IBUs. So, um, you know, last time we did it, 90 IBUs, we thought that was about perfect. And so the next double IPA we do, we'll probably shoot in that same sort of ballpark. So um, we use that number as more of like a loose sort of guess to, you know, which, you know, how low should we drop our whirlpool to get the IBUs we want um, to get us into that range and things like that. But um, knowing all very well that the dry hopping is going to have a big impact on all, all of that. But so that's, that's kind of how we look at the, the IBU number. Right. 
That's helpful to know. So coming on to the dry hopping then, um, I mean, talk me through the extracting bitterness when it comes to dry hops, because again, even from until fairly recently, um, I, I wasn't even aware that was happening. And then I had someone um, say, look, th this keg that you've sold us um, is, is, is really bitter. I'm like, I don't understand because it's like there was no bittering hops in there. Um, and anything <laughs> in the whirlpool was done below 67 degrees C. So I was like, you know, and then it had 22 grams per litre, however much that works out in pounds per barrel. <laughs> you can do the math on that yeah. one. Um, you know, so it was, it was, it was really hopped up, but, uh, you know, and I went to taste it and I was like, actually that is far more bitter than it ought to be, you know, and I, and, it, and I was surprised, you know, and, and uh, I had to take the keg home which made me sad but there you go lesson yeah. learned um yeah. but you know it and and so it's it's something i've been particularly keen to find out about so i mean just just talk us through um dry hopping rates and and bitterness in particular yeah i mean i think uh 16 grams later i think that's close to like four pounds a barrel which is you know on the a pretty heavy side for for dry hopping for a lot of breweries some will go you know a little bit higher than that mm. um and obviously some some lower and i think your your equipment really has a lot of impact into your dry hopping rates and and kind of what you're extracting from them as well you know if you're a big if you're a big brewery and you have a, a centrifuge and you're really kind of you know whipping those hops around almost squeezing them out you're getting you know better extraction than you would if you're just dropping them from the top of your tank i think so mm. that can all play a role in, in what's what's being extracted but um I, yeah i think you know the bitterness you pick up from from dry hopping is more than just those bittering acids i think heavy heavy dry hopping um the 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 greener compounds that you get from hops so let's say the the hydrocarbons, which you know, tend to be like a, a lot of myrcene, for example, is very tiny and green and a lot of polyphenols that might extract during dry hopping. Um, those can be very astringent. And I think if you're kind of layering those things, the polyphenols and um, some hydrocarbons from hops, um, in addition to um, hot side hopping that has uh, obviously is going to make things bitter. I think too much of all those kind of out of balance can come across um, extremely bitter and, and astringent. They almost, you know, almost kind of like if a beer is really dry, um, you know, low, low amount of sugar in the final beer. I think th those beers can come across uh, just more bitter than they are versus one that's, you know, let's say 10 standard points higher, something like that. So there's just so many factors that kind of play into the uh, perception of bitterness in, in hoppy beers. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, there's things you can do to kind of control some of that or, attempt to control some of that and and for us that's you know colder cool dry hopping um you know we do all of our dry hopping well below fermentation temperature and you know you know not too much above um you know cellar temperature like cold cold temperature um and that's just but some of the science that has um that you found in the book or, or referenced in the book and, and some that has come out since its publication which is you know, just showing that the different temperatures you dry hop at, um, the different um, amount of compounds you might receive or get into the beer. So the warmer, for example, the warmer that you dry hop a beer, you're you're more likely to get more polyphenols. Um, you know, one study was like I believe two times as much um, at the the post fermentation warm temperature dry hopping versus a cooler one. Um, again, those can be come across a little astringent. Um, you get less of the hydrocarbons like myrcene at the lower temperatures, um, but you're still getting a lot of the the fruitier compounds and the thiols that you're after at those low ones. So um, for us, that's you know one way to kind of um, not that like a polyphenol is necessarily straight bitter, but it just it, it can be astringent, and I sometimes confuse those in my in my mind or when I'm tasting beers like astringent can kind of be kind of this bitterness perception. So mm. um, so that the, things like that we. Uh, tend to we're always experimenting with different temperatures or different rousing techniques to get the hops because the colder you dry hop a beer i think the quicker those hops are going to want to settle out into the bottom of the tank and so you're going to have to come up with ways to agitate them to get those back into a solution to extract um so you know there's a there's a lot of uh, different ways to try to mimic or try to 
try to uh, guide your beer towards the the result you're after. Yeah. And, um, right now, that's that's kind of where where we're at is you know those two pounds per barrel, uh, whirlpool, um, a little bit of mash hopping. Um, we'll do close to the rate that you just said, so 16 grams a liter, um, four pounds or, or more per barrel um, in the dry hop and dry hopping cooler um, and and short durations. So you know our hops are the beer is, you know, we're dropping out those hops after like two, maybe three days right. and then doing like another, another dry hop edition just to keep that contact time down. Mm. With, with longer contact time, is that one of the things that leaves you more prone to that vegetative green onion, grassy kind of flavor or, or are there other yeah. things that contribute towards that? Yeah. just, you know, really the main thing is a lot of the, studies that, that I've, that I've seen is that, you know, a lot of these compounds we're after in hops, you're you know, extracting pretty quickly in beer. And so, um, a lot of times it's really just why if, if you've gotten pretty much what you've wanted, you might as well just kind of get those, you know, get that off the beer and, and, and you know, start to clean it up a little bit. So mm-hmm. shorter contact time is, is something there. Um, uh, I, I forget the numbers exactly, but you know, there is, um, there was some research done that was, the longer that the beer was on the uh, the hops around the beer, there was a, a higher intake or uh, there was a higher amount of like, you know, again, I'm saying polyphenols a lot here, but polyphenol extraction into the beer. And, um, and so that's, you know, I think that peaked around day four, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess if you're, you're getting what you want from the hops, let's just kind of get them off and, and, and try not to get too much of that just vegetal, uh, kind of taste you can get just get get those fruitier compounds and and move on right so we're we're at the point now where we're 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 dropping the temperature um and getting ready to package um i guess two questions come off the back of that then so hop creep and how to avoid it and secondly uh, this is this is where we start to talk a lot about oxygen (laughs) um so -hmm. like how when we're dry hopping can we um it, and again if we don't have like a hot rocket or torpedo or whatever um mm. h- how can we do that big dry hopping bill without introducing oxygen into those beers because i think everyone again listen to this will will know that um hazy ipas in particular and oxygen really really aren't friends more so than any other beer style right yeah, and I, I I think that's unfortunate because you can you know do your best to you know buy a great equipment, um, you do can have a great recipe, you can nail the you know the the hot side process and nail a lot of the stuff on the cold side. But if you're just doing one one thing that's introducing a lot of oxygen oxygen that can have a pretty big negative impact on on the on a hazy IPA. And so, um, yeah, I guess you know most breweries. Um, that don't have any special equipment. I think generally what what they're doing when they're dry hopping their beer is, you know, running CO2 through their spray ball while they um, are you know, putting in the the hops through their dry hop port. Mm. Um, for us, we have what's called a hop doser, which is essentially just a, a miniature uh, tank that that sits on top of your um, dry hop port. Yep. So. Um, on your dry hop port, you have a, a like a, a valve, usually like a four-inch valve, mm. um, and this tank sits on there. So you we add all of our hops to that tank, close it up, purge that with CO2, um, and then while that little tank that's on the top of it, uh, our dry hop port is under pressure, uh, we can open the valve to the tank. All the hops drop in, and they are you know never the, the beer itself is never exposed. Um, I think that's a relatively affordable way to to dry hop, um, um, and and probably definitely worth the the, the price. Um, and there's other things you can do if you if you're having a lot of issues, you can consider adding some you know metabisulfite or, or something like that, the oxygen scavenger. But I know that there's um, not everyone can can do that legally. I'm, I'm not sure how it is. I think how it's it is fine. In, I think I think it's fine in the UK. Don't quote me on that, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, I, so, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen it available. Yeah, it's just a good way to, to try to keep those DO numbers down if, if you're having issues or at least something to um, to consider trying. Mm. 
And so what what, what about hot creep and, and avoiding that? Um, what what sort of yeah. things can we do? Um, obviously, other than making sure we've done a, a VDK test to make sure this, um, you know, you have really reached terminal gravity. Um, but it's, you know, it's, as you say in the book, like those introductions of hops during dry hopping can just kind of help it ferment a little bit more. So what, what sort of things can we do just to keep an eye on that? Yeah, you know, luckily uh, we haven't had a lot of issues with hop creep uh, at, at the brewery, um, but we've done a lot of the things that, you know, the, the research papers have kind of um, guided us to over the last few years when it comes to hop creep. Um, and that is, you know, the, the enzymes, these active enzymes that are in hops, um, they're, when you're dry hopping, what they're doing are essentially just freeing up, um, dextrins. So dextrins are non-fermentable sugars, but when the hop, the enzymes from the hops get in the beer, they're able to break down those dextrins into now fermentable sugars, which is then, you know, if there's yeast active in there, or just even a little bit, um, they'll start to try to work on those. Um, fermentable sugars and it could be an unhealthy fermentation and lead to you know, diacetyl or something like that. Um, but what the research re- has shown that we're, and we've had some luck doing this is, you know, another case for sort of cool uh, dry hopping yeah, stems from, from hop creep because the, those enzymes that are, you know, act they're they're less, the enzymes are less active at the cooler dry hopping temperatures. Um, and also the shorter duration helps uh, with with hop creep too. So just kind of, you know, getting those, getting what you want from them, getting them off, and keeping that beer cool. That can um, all help keep those um, active enzymes down and hopefully help avoid uh, some hop creep. So that's that's what we've been doing for the most part. Um, you can also consider adding some. You know, there's a lot of different um, hop oils that are hop variety specific now that can be added. Um, to uh, finish beer, already dry hop beer, to try to up the you know the aromatic uh, profile of a of a beer. And the, um, uh, most of not most of these oils, I, I I wrote a blog post not too long ago on a lot of these different oils, um, but most of them have the enzymes denatured that can cause hop creeps. So um, that's another way to try to sneak in some more hop flavor without mm. worrying about. Um, hop creep when you're trying to do something you know, post-fermentation. Yeah, and would you dose that to your fermenter in the same way if you have a dry-up doser? In this, would you literally dose it in a similar way? Put it in the, the doser, seal it up, purge it, and then drop it in? You know, that's it's tricky because a lot of these are, are like pre-emulsified. Right. Um, and so they, they, should, they should add um, or mix um, fairly evenly, but you know, I'm always a little suspicious of that um, when you're adding it to like a big tank yep. if it's really mixing in. Um, so if you know if you're gonna if you know you're gonna be transferring a beer, so you know if if you're a brewery that uses utilizes bright tanks, um, so you could tee off your transfer going into your tank with a keg uh, and you know have the oils in there and sort mm-hmm. of dose it in line as you transfer. That that could be one way. Um, We've done it sometimes where you just take um, take one of your you know put a valve on one of your side ports and you know kind of create a, a, a U like use a ninety um, elbow and go do a sight glass and then you just pour in the emulsified um, oils into that sight glass and elbow and close it up with a you know you know purge that mm. pulse that that whole rig with CO two and then just shoot it in your tank. Yep. Um, kind of from the middle with CO2 and then just leave the CO2 bubbling for a little bit to try to try to mix it a little bit. Mm. Um, uh, maybe adding adding the oil in that way right before you uh, uh, carbonate the beer um, in hopes that maybe the carb stones might be moving the beer around a little bit. That might help uh, mix it in. But um, yeah, we've never actually uh, just used, dumped it in through the dry hop port. But I guess, um, you know, that that is uh, one potential way uh, to do it. We did a collab with a brewery um, that actually did that. They just added the oils to the bag of hops and then dumped those in the port. So, you know, hopefully the, the beer itself absorbed the oil and, and they didn't just suck it into the, to the hop pellet. But yep. um, yeah, so there's a lot of different creative ways. I'm sure that um, that might be better than what I've uh, just, or what we've tried, but that's, that's kind of where we're at mm. right now. So I guess um, last in the line of, 
brewing an IPA is putting it in pack and then storing it to make sure it's, um, you know, fresh is best and all that. Um, so, I mean, just t- talk me through when it comes to packaging an IPA, is, is that just a straightforward running through the canning line or bottling line effort or are there any particular um, methods and things you try to look out for when you're doing it or breweries that you know of who are packaging IPAs just, just to ensure that they are keeping their DO levels and their um, TPO levels really down. Um, and it, it just, I guess, any nuggets and pearls of wisdom just to keep um, IPAs nice and stable and fresh? Yeah, I, you know, I, I guess it depends a lot of times on like your canning line and just, you know, how well of a job it does, you know, purging the cans with CO2 and how well it does that, you know, how quickly it, it seams them. Um, you know, if you've done your job to that point, hopefully you should be fine. You know, if you, if you're dry hopping in a manner that's not introduction, introducing oxygen and, you know, maybe you're, you're mash hopping, which might help reduce some of those metals that, you know, could cause problems. Um, you know, like little things like that might help to go a long way when it comes to packaging. Um, if you're using a little metabisulfite, for example, maybe that'll, that during dry hopping, that might help, um, in the long run. Um, you know, if, if you're kegging, I think, um, you have a little more control where, you know, like we, you know, after a keg comes off of our keg cleaner, we're, we're purging, you know, we then fill that keg up to 30 PSI a few times and really, you know, you know, one blast out any residual sanitizer that might be in the settling on the bottom of that keg, but also it's just, you know, purging that keg, hopefully getting more and more of that oxygen out, um, doing what you can to either, you know, run beer through your lines, obviously, before um, you start going into package or you know, purging the lines with CO2 with a T before mm. you know, having beer go through them. Um, just really being pretty, pretty paranoid throughout the whole process. You know, if you're, if you're going to be burping your tanks from the bottom with, with CO2 to try to rouse hops, you know, it's, you know purging out that little area so let's say you you burp with like a, 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 a like an el, a elbow, ninety degree elbow, and then you know like a pneumatic plug or something. You're you're burping that elbow before you open the tank. You know, it's just I think just being as uh, paranoid as you can with the oxygen is probably going to help uh, in the long run because you know once you get the packaging day, hopefully you know you're in a you're in a good place. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I was talking to a brewer the other day for another episode of this podcast. It was pretty much saying the same thing about um, purging any lines for like, you know, with his car, if he's about to use his carb stone, you know, saying he's learned lots. It's a lot of little things like that just to purge that line before you carb stone up, um, you know, whereas, you know, I'd, I'd not even thought of that. So I was just sticking mm. my, my, you know, my line on with to my carb stone and going for it. So. Yeah, um, all, all good stuff. So I, I guess the, the the last the last question I've got then is we always hear this phrase "fresh is best" when it comes to beer and IPAs in particular. How much truth do you think there is in that? And do you think that some IPAs maybe even go as far as benefit from a little bit of aging, or is that just complete nonsense? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I think the Equipment again plays a role in how quickly your beer IPAs can peak. I think you know a brewery is lucky enough to have like a centrifuge. I think that can can really you know there's been um, research done with with hoppy beers that have been centrifuged and they and they can see the the amount of these greener um, you know, hydrocarbons um, uh, are pulled out of the beer at a pretty high rate um, when you're centrifuging. And I think a lot of those are what can come across kind of. Um, green and, and astringent when you're drinking a super fresh, uh, heavily dry hopped IPA. So I think a centrifuge can kind of increase that, 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 you know, fresh is, is best kind of a mindset. Um, you know, but for us, you know, a lot of our beers, you know, by the time we brew a, a heavily dry hop double IPA, you know, we're, we're close to three and a half weeks, uh, four weeks a month um, by the time that's canned. Mm. And I think even after, after that beer is canned, letting it sit a, a week might, you know, help uh, even a little bit more. So, you know, we're talking well over a, a month from from brew day, and and I think that beer is getting close to where it might peak. So, um, 
you know, I think, and we don't have a centrifuge or any, you know, fancy equipment like that. So, you know, I, you know, I think the more that there's dry hopped, I think the more time in a, a can um, can help it, you mm. know, again, as long as, as, as long as, you know, the process was good and oxygen was down and, and all that, but um, yeah, it just takes some time for some of these beers to kind of hit their stride and, and kind of mellow out a little bit, I think. Fantastic. Well, Scott, it's been absolutely amazing to have you on the show and a real privilege to pick your brains having uh, read the new IPA. For anyone out there listening to this that's not got a copy of this yet, um, well, hopefully at the end of this, they're going to go and buy one, but where where can they get it from? Well, uh, it's on uh, just Amazon is all actually right now, but um, but I want to thank you for for having me on. This is, it's it's great to... uh, um, to meet you and talk to you and, and hopefully it was a, a, a little bit helpful for, for some brewers out there I'm sure it was thank you well it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes Spotify and all other good platforms be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business We make your beer look as good as it tastes and we help you brew up a better business through branding, marketing and consultancy. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. Cheers.